I am going to have a lot of fun. I hope you guys have fun too, but your fun is not dependent on my fun. I will have a lot of fun because I'm talking about church power, and this is something that uh, is a, a fun topic for me. It's something uh, I have been interested in um, for many years. You know, I, I'll tell you one thing. Um, not trying to bash Calvary Chapel, but when I left Calvary Chapel, it was not primarily because of Calvinism versus Arminianism. For me, what really moved me out more was how power was handled in the church. Um, that, to me, was actually kind of the, the last straw in many ways, though I, I still love those brothers, and I left on good terms. Um, but we're going to have fun today. Uh, we are continuing in our study of chapter 26 of the Confession of the Church, and in particular today, we are looking at paragraph 7. As again, as I said a few weeks ago, paragraph 4 kind of outlines the rest of the paragraphs and the topics in the chapter. For example, it says, Christ has, given by the, uh, has been given by the Father all power for the calling, institution, and order or government, kind of one and the same thing, order slash government of the church. And really those three things, calling, institution, and order slash government, make up the rest of the chapter. We saw the calling of the church in paragraph 5, the institution last week of the local church, how it's to be constituted by way of covenanting together in gospel ordinances, and today in chapter 27, we begin, or paragraph 27, we begin the topic of the order and government of the church. We can see this is the case, as it says in paragraph 7, that Christ has given all that power and authority which is in any way needful for the carrying on that order in worship and discipline. I would say that after this, this is pretty much what the rest of the chapter is going to be talking about. Most of the chapter is talking about church power and order and government, um, and starting with paragraph 7, it's just kind of breaking that down even more, but it really starts here. That being said, however, paragraph 7, I would say, does not just begin the section on church order. I would argue even more than that. It is crucial understanding everything that comes after this, and I would even go one step further and argue that paragraph 7 is in many ways the foundation of congregational ecclesiology. And perhaps as you read it now or as we go to read it in a moment, it does not appear to be all that significant. Uh, you might even be tempted to skip over it. It kind of just seems to state the obvious. Christ has given his church's power, Right? Yet I would say this is the, one of the most important paragraphs for us as Baptists and Congregationalists. But what I would like to do then is first to read it, and then I want to ask you guys a question, okay? <clears throat> Paragraph 7. To each of these churches thus gathered, according to his mind, declared in his word, he hath given all that power and authority which is in any way needful for their carrying on that order in worship and discipline which he hath instituted for them to observe, with commands and rules for the due and right exerting and executing of that power. 
Now, let me ask you this, and perhaps you might think it's obvious. That's okay. Feel free to state the obvious. Uh, Sin boldly, as I like to say. But what would you say that this paragraph is about? I know I've kind of said it has to do with church power and order and all that, Um, but what is it about? Or perhaps to say it another way, what do you lose if you get rid of this paragraph? What do you lose from the confession if you get rid of this paragraph? Any thoughts? The authority of Christ in the church, yeah. Anything else? You lose order, okay, yeah. Anything else? Denominations, maybe? Okay. Church discipline, okay, all those, all those things are getting there. What I would say this paragraph is really about, more or less, as I've said, is the foundation of congregationalism, but I would say specifically, this is the main argument that our confession of faith gives for the independence of the local church. The independence of the local church. Now, you might be a little surprised by that, and, and, I mean, if anywhere in this chapter seems to be arguing for the independence and autonomy of the local church, it really seems to be more paragraph 15, right? There, it's talking about associations of churches and their messengers, and it says, Howbeit these messengers assembled are not entrusted with any church power properly so called, or with any jurisdiction over the churches themselves, to exercise any censures either over any churches or persons, or to impose their determination on the churches or officers, right? That really looks like the independence of the local church, and it is. I'm not denying that. I would argue, however, that the main argument put forth by our confession for the independence of the local church is paragraph 7, and I would say that this is typically the way that congregationalists argued for the independence of the local church. It's very important, therefore. We must understand it rightly because it's actually saying a whole lot. As I said, it kind of seems to be saying the obvious. Yeah, Christ gives power to his churches. You almost want to glance over it to get to kind of more the, the juicier, what looks to be controversial stuff. But it's actually saying a whole lot. And because we're not as familiar with the debates as there used to be between Congregationalists and Presbyterians and others, we kind of just glance over this paragraph, paragraph quickly, but if you know what to look for, you will see the heart of congregationalism here. And I would say even a Presbyterian reading this several hundred years ago, or one who's familiar today, would see paragraph 7 as setting forth a distinctly congregational ecclesiology and view of church power, Okay. So we're going to break that down, but before we break it down, I want to start with a story. Everyone loves stories, right? I remember many years ago, I was a member and an intern in a little Southern Baptist church in the high desert of California, okay? Um, It was a very proudly Southern Baptist church. There, There are many Southern Baptist churches in California. This church had the actual title, Southern Baptist, in the title. It was First Southern Baptist Church of Yucca Valley. That, I've never seen any other church, not even in the South do they do that really, but they did it there. It was predominantly an older congregation, 
but they were very, very sweet there, okay? And there was an older gentleman there. He's probably in his 80s. His name was Luther, and he was a Texan, and he was quite the Texan. Every Sunday, he came to church with his boots on. He had a Western sports coat that's like made of tweed, but it has leather patches on it. You know what I'm talking about? Um, And he had a bolo tie. The only thing he was lacking was a hat. He never wore a hat to church, but he was a total Southern Baptist. He would wear on his jacket, like Southern Baptist, I wouldn't call them achievement pins, but things you would get if you grew up. Do you know what I'm talking about, Jason? Uh, One of them, I think, had the Ten Commandments on it. It was like, if you had been in various Southern Baptist churches and groups and did things, you would get these pins. He was a total Southern Baptist, and he was a very sweet brother. They are the treasury of merit. That's right, yeah. But he wore that every Sunday. I think that was his Sunday coat, or he put them in every Sunday. I don't know. But one Sunday, we had a visitor, and Luther was showing her our church bulletin, and he was telling her about our church, and he was explaining to her what kind of a church we were, and somewhere along the lines, he got to the independence or the autonomy of the local church, and I'll never forget what he said to her. This was his definition of independence. He said, with kind of a raspy southern Texas accent, he said, I won't do the accent, but he said, this means no one can tell us what to do. This means no one can tell us what to do. Now, there's a sense in which I could make some distinguish, uh, some, some distinctions, and I could concede the truth of that statement. But let me just say to you, I do not think our theological forebears would ever have articulated the independence of the local church in that kind of way, or if they did, it would be with a great many qualifications and explanations. In fact, in the history of congregationalism, congregationalists were referred to by others as independents, but they themselves didn't really call themselves that. That was kind of more a jab at them by Presbyterians. The Congregationalists didn't like it, though. They thought that term was apt to be misunderstood and to misrepresent their view. And in fact, in the Cambridge Platform of Polity, they say, the term independent, we approve not. Right? If you had asked them what they were, what they called themselves, they would have said they were of the congregational way. They were of the congregational way. That's often how they spoke of themselves. And a fun little fact for for you Baptists here, it has been argued by the eminent historian of congregationalism, Jeffrey Nuttall, that the first person to use the phrase congregational way in print was William Kiffin, when he was a member of the JLJ church before he had become a Baptist. Just goes to show how intertwined Baptist and congregational roots are in many ways. Now, They were of the congregational way. Presbyterians, they referred to as those of the presbyterial way, but they didn't really call themselves the independents, okay? Now, in that seemingly little difference between those two terms and names, independent versus congregational, I think we actually see something very important about how the congregationalists viewed their own position. What I mean by that is that they primarily thought about it in positive terms rather than negative. Just consider the word independent. 
That's actually a negative term in many ways. It means not dependent. We speak this way in theology proper sometimes of the the via negativa, the negative way of speaking about God. You're actually saying what God is not. When we say he's impassable, we're meaning he's not passable. When we say he's infinite, we mean he's not finite. When we say he's immense, we mean he's not measurable. And so to say the church is independent means it is not dependent. However, and there, there is a sense, it's not necessarily wrong to use that term. I will use it today. Um, for example, John Cotton says, you can use it if by that you mean, quote, we do not depend on classes, a class is like uh, classes, um, Think of just a presbytery, okay? It's a larger governing institutional body. He says, we do not depend on classes or synods for determination in church censures. So you can use it if you mean it in quite its proper sense. But I would say the primary way in which they spoke was positively, positively. Now, what is a positive way to say not dependent? What would you say? Free? Freedom. Autonomous? Okay. They would often use terms like complete, entire, whole. They typically spoke then of a local visible congregation as having complete, or all, as our confession says, all power from Christ that it needed to do whatever Christ had commanded them to do. And the result is that they did not need to go to someone else or some other entity to get it approved or to get it notarized. It follows from this that, therefore, that congregation is independent in terms of its power. It is not dependent on someone or something else. It has it of itself given to it by Christ. But again, notice, the main way they argued about this is primarily in terms uh, of of positiveness, right? What I'm trying to get at is they did not argue for their independence as perhaps we might say a young adult who has just turned 18 might do. You can't tell me what to do. I'm independent now, right? Think of my friend Luther. No one can tell us what to do. Uh, They didn't really speak that way. That's how they were unfairly caricatured by Presbyterians, which is why the Presbyterians called them independents. Look at you with all your independence, right? Whatever. In fact, some very uh, passionate Presbyterians, like Robert Bailey, even called them Anabaptists. What? I thought the particular Baptists were the only Anabaptists in England. No, he would accuse even those other congregational brothers like Thomas Goodwin, John Owen, all of them, of having their roots in Anabaptism. Why? Well, the Anabaptists practice more or less a congregational ecclesiology, right? Just goes to show you the danger. Everyone called everybody Anabaptists in the 17th century. The Episcopalians called the Presbyterians Anabaptists. The Anabaptists called the Congregationalists Anabaptists, or the, the Congregationalists called Okay, everyone called everyone Anabaptists, okay? What the Congregationalists really meant, though, is that the local church is fully furnished by Christ with all the power that she needs, okay? Well, let's break this down even more because there's a whole lot more we could say about this. 
Turn again to paragraph 7 and we'll break it down. It says, To each of these churches thus gathered, according to his mind declared in his word, he hath given all that power and authority which is in any way needful for their carrying on that order in worship and discipline which he hath instituted for them to observe. Now, perhaps right there you can see exactly what I was just talking about, but I want to bring out and highlight a certain concept, which is not said explicitly, but what, which is behind this. And you may not be familiar with it now, but it was all the rage back in the day. And this is the idea of the first subject of church power. The first subject of church power, or you could say the first recipient of church power. If you really want to be fancy, you can say the Greek word, which is the proton dectacon. The proton dectacon, okay? Proton is Greek for first. Dectacon comes from dekamai, which means to receive. So you are the first recipient. You have something, and you are therefore the first subject of it. Now, that term and concept is used occasionally elsewhere in theology, it really has its roots, I think, in philosophy and I think in Aristotle, but it was used extensively in the debates surrounding ecclesiology, particularly to identify the first subject or seat of church power. The idea with the first subject is that you are the full, first and full recipient of church power immediately from Christ, so you do not need to derive it from anywhere else. If anything, the power of others is in some sense derivative of the power that you've been given, okay? Now, technically, the first first subject of church power is Jesus Christ, right? Therefore, he is also referred to by theologians, not just congregationalists, but everyone is the ultimate proton dectacon, the first subject of church power. So, for example, even the Presbyterian John Flavel says, the subject in whom God the Father lodges this authority is the Son of Man. Jesus Christ is the proton dectacon, the first receptacle of it, and he must here be understood exclusively. Okay? Similarly, the Cambridge Platform of Polity says in chapter 5 of the first subject or of church power or to whom church power doth first belong, one, the first subject of church power is either supreme or subordinate and ministerial, okay? It's either supreme or subordinate. We'll get to the subordinate one. That's really the main thing paragraph 7 is talking about. But notice the first one is supreme, and then it goes on to say, the supreme by way of gift from the Father is the Lord Jesus Christ. John Cotton writes about this in his famous book, The Keys of the Kingdom. He says, The Lord Jesus Christ, the head of his church, is the proton dectacon, the first subject of the sovereign power of the keys. Now, keys refers to the keys of the kingdom, and it's used synonymously to speak of church power and authority. So by saying Christ is the sovereign, supreme, uh, first subject of the keys, he means of church power and authority. He continues, hence, all legislative power, the power of making laws in the church, is in Christ and not from him derived to any other. 
the power derived to others is only to publish and execute his laws and ordinances and to see them observed. Okay? Now, really, this is what paragraph 4 of chapter 26 of the Confession is getting at, right? Look there again with me if you have your Confession of Faith. Paragraph 4, chapter 26. It says, The Lord Jesus Christ is the head of the church in whom, by the appointment of the Father, all power for the calling, institution, order, or government of the church is invested, listen, in a supreme and sovereign manner. So Christ is the supreme first subject of church power, and that is not disputed by anyone, at least not Protestants, right? We all affirm that. Even Catholics would kind of affirm that, but anyway, we, don't, we won't get into that today. Now, what paragraph 7 is getting at is the first subject of church power, but not the supreme subject of church power, but the ministerial and the subordinate, okay? Again, the Cambridge Platform says the first subject of church power is either supreme, Christ, or its subordinate and ministerial, okay? Now, we're about to jump into the deeper waters. Hopefully, you're already tracking. So, I have a handout here. Um, this will help me. Uh, Dominic will help me here, and anybody else who wants to help Dominic. Uh, this helps me to think about it. Hopefully, it will help you as well. Because there's a lot of distinctions and fun things. All right. We can see kind of on the left-hand side, I've broken it down into sovereign power and ministerial power, okay? Or we could say the sovereign first subject of church power and the ministerial first subject of church power. And you can see that Christ alone is the sovereign first subject. He has that there. No one else is reigning up there with him, okay? Yet below that, for the ministerial it is broken down into two categories, namely extraordinary and ordinary. Extraordinary church power is that which existed for a time, is no longer here. It is really apostolic church power, okay? This is why, for example, Paul will say things like this in 1 Corinthians 4, 18 through 21. Now, some have become arrogant as though I were not coming to you, but I will come to you soon if the Lord wills, and I shall find out not the words of those who are arrogant, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in words, but in power. What do you desire? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love and a spirit of gentleness? His rod is his apostolic power he has by Christ. In fact, many would argue that when Ananias dies, he does so, it is done by God, but it's Peter exercising his apostolic power and a censure upon Ananias so that he dies. And if you read that there, Peter pronounces the words, and then it says he dies. They would say that's what this is talking about, the rod of apostolic power. 
So when Paul says, would you want me to come with a rod or not? He, he's talking about something quite significant. That's why he says, it's not about words, but power. I have power from Christ to do this. John Cotton explains, the apostles of Christ were the first subject of apostolical power. Apostolical power stood chiefly in two things. First, that each apostle had in him all ministerial power of all the officers of the church. They, by virtue of their office, might exhort as pastors, teach as teachers, rule as rulers, and distribute the resources of the church as deacons. Indeed, any one apostle or evangelist carried about with him the liberty and power of the whole church, and therefore might baptize, yes, even censure an offender too, as if he had the presence and concurrence of the whole church with him. So basically, everything that we as an ordinary church can do in many ways, all the different offices and acts, an apostle had all of that power in themselves to do it from Christ, okay? However, since these extraordinary offices of apostle, prophet, and evangelist no longer exist, now the only subject of ministerial power is the local church. And you can see on the bottom right hand, it says ordinary, and right above that is the local church. For our purposes, and the rest of the time we're going to spend on, and in the day we live, the local church, when we speak of the ministerial first subject, it's only the local church, because that extraordinary office of apostle is gone, okay? So for example, listen to what John Cotton says. This is interesting. Um, it follows from this, again, as I said, that the church is independent. Listen to what he says. What the church is, which is the first subject of the power of the keys, and whether this church have an independent power in the exercise thereof, though they may be made two distinct questions, yet if candidly interpreted, they are but one. So whether or not the local church is the first subject of church power or whether or not the local church is independent, that might seem like two questions, but John Cotton says it's actually the same thing, but just from a different side. Because if the local church is first, the first subject, it follows she is independent in power. He explains it this way, For whatsoever is the first subject of any accident or adjunct, the same is independent in the enjoyment of it. He goes on to explain, as if fire be the first subject of heat, then it dependeth upon no other subject for heat. Fire first puts forth heat itself and communicates heat to whatsoever things else are hot. So fire does not, does not get heat from somewhere else. It has it of itself. Rather, it puts out fire or it puts out heat. In a similar way, the local church is the first subject of church power because it has received it immediately from Christ, and so it does not receive it mediately, not immediately, through any other. It is given by Christ, and therefore it has it of itself. This is what paragraph 7 is getting at. Look at it again. To each of these churches thus gathered, according to his mind declared in his word, he hath given all that power and authority which is in any way needful for their carrying on that order and worship and discipline. 
First, notice that these local churches receive this power immediately from Christ himself. It says, to each of these churches, he hath given. This is why if you look in the handout between Christ and the local church, there's nothing else. There's no higher ecclesiastical apparatus. There's no presbytery, not even an association of churches, right? There's not a bishop. It's just received directly from Christ. Perhaps this truth was summarized most succinctly by Henry Jacob when he said this, there is nothing without the church. Now, without means outside. We used to use, whereas within means within. Without means on the outside, okay? There is nothing without the church above it, ecclesiastically speaking. There is nothing without the church above it, other than Christ. He says, seeing each church hath her power and government immediately from Christ. He gives this analogy. The nation of England is free, entire, and independent, holding immediately from the Lord of heaven each office and ministry, not deriving it either in whole or in part from any foreign potentate or governor on earth. Okay? So the power of the local church is given immediately by Christ. In fact, in the Savoy platform, in the paragraph following what is our paragraph 7, it says this, These particular churches, thus appointed by the authority of Christ and entrusted with power from Him for the ends before expressed, are each of them as unto those ends the seat of that power which He is pleased to communicate to His saints or subjects in the world, so that as such they receive it immediately from Himself. Okay? So receive it immediately from Christ. The next thing to notice in our confession, though it's been hinted at, is that not only is this power immediately from Christ, but it is a complete power. Paragraph 7 says, Christ hath given all that power and authority which is in any way needful for their carrying on that order in worship and discipline. So there's nothing in terms of church government revealed in Scripture. There's nothing in terms of worship that we do not have power and authority from Christ to do. The local church wants to receive members, or if it needs to put some members out, does it need to go to another entity to do this? No. In Matthew 18, the third step of discipline is to tell the matter to the church. As Benjamin Keach points out, it does not say, basically, if they will not listen to one or two witnesses, then tell it to the elders. Nor does it say, and if they will not listen to the church, tell it to the regional presbytery. But as they say, the buck stops with the church. If a church needs officers, she can appoint them. If she needs to depose them, she has power to do that as well without going to someone else. And while a congregation without elders cannot administer the sacraments, yet they have power from Christ to call officers who can. And when those officers administer the sacraments, they are not acting as an outside entity apart from the church, but acting within it as part of it. So that there is truly nothing that Christ has commanded the church to do that the local church does not have power to do. By contrast, 
Can elders within a church or a regional presbytery appoint officers without the consent of the church? No. And even Presbyterians concede that. They ought to. Sometimes when they're getting feisty, they they like to say no. But they're in the minority position of church history when they say that. Can elders excommunicate without the consent of the church? No. And again, even Presbyterians affirm that. I would say the majority of Reformed and ancient fathers would say that as well. And yet our beloved brothers, Presbyterian brothers and sisters, would say that not the local congregation, but the regional presbytery over multiple congregations is the first subject of the keys. Now, to be fair to them, they believe that many congregations under one regional presbytery may be called a church. And so they would say that the church is also the first subject of the power of the keys, but not the congregation. This is really why congregationalists are called congregationalists and Presbyterians are called Presbyterians because of how they define the church that is the first subject of the keys. For the Congregationalists, that church which is the, su- the subject of the keys is a local congregation. For the Presbyterians, they argue it is the presbytery over several churches. Okay, So therefore, that's the first subject, that's what the church is, right? And yet, with great love and respect for our Presbyterian brothers and sisters, I think the Congregationalists take the day by arguing not only that we should understand the local church to be a local congregation, but also that the church itself, and not just the elders, is the first subject of church power. After all, a church can excommunicate without the elders, but the elders cannot excommunicate without the church, so then surely the church is the first subject. No, probably one of the the greatest opponents of congregationalism in print was uh, the otherwise very beloved Samuel Rutherford. Have you ever met, read him? The Scotsman. He, he and Robert Bailey, two Scotsmen. Robert Bailey was the one who called the Congregationalists Anabaptists. He was a little... He, there's a funny line by Robert Bailey. He says, The quality and number of men taken up by this error is astounding. They're all godly. He's like Owen, Goodwin. All, they're, they're godly, but they have this huge error of Anabaptism. It's kind of funny, right? But Rutherford, um, he would go toe-to-toe with the Congregationalists in print, and they would go toe-to-toe back with him and back and forth and back and forth. And yet, as Thomas, Thomas Hooker, another great Congregationalist, points out, even Samuel Rutherford and others conceded that with excommunication, that most grave and serious use of church power, they would often call that, the, in many ways, the greatest act that a church can do, right? It cannot be done without the church. Even Rutherford agrees with that. Thomas Hooker comments on this. He kind of, kind of puts his dirty laundry out to, for everyone to see. He says, Master Rutherford, talking about excommunication, writes, and then he quotes Rutherford. Listen to what Rutherford says. Rutherford says, Beza and our divines Calvin, Bootser, Bollinger, Melanchthon, Buchanus, Piraeus, Reve, Sabrandus, Junius, Trocadius, the fathers Cyprian, Jerome, Augustine, Nazianzen, Chrysostom, Ambrose, Theodoret, and Theophylact require all to be done by consent of the people. That's Rutherford naming all those people. 
(laughs) And so Hooker then says, And why should their consent be required if it were merely a matter of compliment, if the elders were to do it or indeed could do it without them? For it is in it is on for it is on the people's power to keep excommunication from taking place, and the elders alone do not have a power given to them by Christ to manage this. And therefore, he says, Peter Martyr is peremptory and definitive in his expressions touching this point, saying, Therefore, we conclude that none is permitted to excommunicate without the consent of the church. And so, if the elders, who are the first seat of the power, Yet they cannot do it apart from the the consent of the people? Are they the first seat of the power? That's what they're arguing. Furthermore, or let me say, so for our beloved Presbyterian brothers, they can say a regional presbytery over many congregations is a church and is thereby the first subject of the church power, but even their own admissions are against this, I would say. Furthermore, let me just point out briefly that all the Presbyterian doom and gloom predictions about the independence of the local church do not necessarily have weight, okay? Necessarily. The Congregationalists were accused back then, and you will find this today as well, um, uh, of having no way to remedy matters of sin or false doctrine because all the churches are independent, right? It's just a bunch of teenagers going, I can do whatever I want, man. You can't tell me what to do, right? Thomas Goodwin and Philip Nye say that their Presbyterian brothers argue, quote, if each church is independent, then there is no allowed sufficient remedy for miscarriages of justice, though never so gross. No relief for wrongful sentences or persons injured thereby. No room for complaints. No power or effectual means to deal with a church or churches that fall into heresy, schism, etc., but everyone is left and may take liberty without control to do what is good in their own eyes. Sounds pretty bad, right? (laughs) However, this has not been the case in the history of congregationalism. To be sure, there were many times (laughs) when you could find evidences of this within congregationalism when they did not live up to their own principles of Scripture, when they dropped the ball. But independence does not necessarily lead to all those things. In fact, one of the coolest quotes, one of the greatest compliments I ever found about the Congregationalists, I almost like jumped out of my chair when I found this, okay? It was by an English Presbyterian in the 17th century named Philip Henry. And he writes this in his diary, and he's not a fan of Congregationalism. He's not a fan. Listen to what he says. Three things I do not like about the independent way. One, they unchurch the nation, so they deny a national church. Two, they pluck up the hedge of parish order. So not only a national church, but it's getting down to the parishes and parochial whatevers, okay? Three, they throw the ministry common and allow persons to preach who are unordained. They have gifted brothers. But then he says, in two things they are to be commended. One, that they keep up discipline amongst themselves, and two, that they love and correspond with one another. There goes all your doom and gloom right there. 
They keep up discipline, and they love and correspond. They're not islands unto themselves, though they are independent powers. They do have room for complaints in dealing with these things, right? Again, congregation, congregationalism no more necessarily leads to chaos than Presbyterianism, with all of its apparatus, necessarily leads to perfect order and doctrine, right? Just show that to your, lovingly to your Presbyterian brothers and sisters. Now, the last thing to note about paragraph 7, before we close, let's see, how are we doing on time? All right, we'll get there. Is the last little phrase, with commands and rules for the due and right exerting and executing of that power. This is partly setting us up for the rest of the, parag- the, rest of the chapter. Everything that follows is the commands and rules for the due and right exerting and executing of that church power, okay? But it's also getting at the idea that church order has been positively instituted by Christ. There are circumstances, our confession says, of church order, which are guided by the light of nature. But the government itself is instituted positively in the Word of God by Christ. If you believe that, you believe in what is called de jure church government, government by law. It is instituted. It's not something we can say, um, well, Christ has really given us a lot of room here to figure this out. Maybe Episcopalianism works better there. Sometimes you'll read people who speak that way. Um, But it's really the exegetical impulse for congregationalism, and it's basically just the regulative principle as it applies to ecclesiology, okay? Now, obviously, our Presbyterian brothers and sisters hold to the regulative principle, for example, in point of worship, as we do, and yet, because of a host of factors, they import things from the Old Covenant into the New, even though we would argue they have no positive institution to do so, such as infant baptism. And yet, the same thing happens in terms of church government as well. Namely, that they will argue that since the nation of Israel as a whole is called an assembly or a church, that therefore there is such a thing as a national church. The congregational response to this was that that was in the Old Covenant, but now there's no positive institution for such a church. John Cotton writes, in the New Testament, it is not a new observation that we never read of any national church, nor of any national officers given to them by Christ. In the Old Testament, indeed, we read of a national church. All the tribes of Israel were three times in a year to appear before the Lord in Jerusalem, and he appointed them there a high priest of the whole nation and certain sacrifices, and together with him other priests and elders and judges to whom all appeals should be brought. But we read of no such national church or high priest or court in the New Testament. Rather, they would argue... What we see for a church in the New Testament is congregations with their own officers who can assemble in one place together. And so, while we love our brothers of the Presbyterian way, um, I am not convinced you can make the word church mean a regional presbytery made of many congregations. The closest thing exegetically you get to that is like Acts 9.31 where it says, so the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria enjoyed peace. But notice, it's not the church of Judea 
Galilee, and Samaria, but throughout, meaning it's referring to that part of the universal body which resides in that region. Thomas Goodwin explains, we acknowledge that the visible saints in a kingdom or in a city may be called the church as bearing the respect or consideration or notion of the mystical universal church as every part of a body of water bears the name of the whole. So we sometimes do that without even thinking about it. Lord, would you raise up leaders amongst the, in the church in China, right? Strengthen your church, Lord. We don't mean a church with officers and visible church power, but we're referring to really the universal body as it resides in that region, region okay? And I would say we see no other church in the New Testament with such church power but a congregation. Now, I have talked a lot. I've talked a whole lot, but we do have time for questions. Uh, I know that was a lot. I know we flew really fast, uh, but I told you, I'm going to have a lot of fun. I hope you guys have fun on the way too. But any questions? I do. I'm, I'm sorry to know where it is, yes. I wish I didn't. Yeah, I read somewhere, I, I'd have to find it. It's someone in the 17 or 1800s talking about the independence of a local church. And he makes a comment that it had developed among Baptists as a much more you-can't-tell-me-what-to-do attitude. He said, but it was not like this amongst the first ones. Um, that kind of developed later on and, um, but I would say, especially for the first hundred years, first couple hundred years of Baptist history and congregationalism, it's not like that. So, any other questions or thoughts? Hmm. Yes. I would say that's absolutely true because the English Presbyterians all evaporate in the same century as the Westminster Confession for the most part, and they all start speaking of justification in very unhealthy ways. Now, the Congregationalists and the Baptists do have some funky things too because the, the 18th century is just not friendly to confessionalism in general, right? But if you went to an Orthodox church holding that good old Protestant religion, it would not be in an Anglican church, though there were many good Anglican brothers and sisters for a long time and still are, nor would it be largely Presbyterianism, okay? Um, so yeah, and I think that is just fascinating. It's almost like Thomas Hooker says something, we have to, be, we have to try to not be careful to be wiser than Christ. And we should not be surprised that when we let each church have its power as Christ has given, that she will act as saints, right? That's, now, again, there's many things in our history that are not great, 
Um, but I would say there's a lot of beautiful orthodoxy that we can say, hey, this is not doom and gloom. It has not played out as they said. All right, that's a great point. All right, anybody else?